Children's Church, if you want to go. Um, I'm going to move the microphone, so. Um, usually when you move that, you get that horrible retching sound. So um, as the children are going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, you said that um, there was a day coming and now was when people would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that that was who the Father was pursuing. That's who the Father was seeking to be his worshipers. And so, the, Lord, I think of that new song we sang about how you overcame all of these things for us. Lord, you, you called us, you drew us into uh, come to worship you, um, not in a domineering or um, a forced sense, but Lord, by showing us your, your beauty and your greatness. And so therefore we are called to worship. Lord, I pray that this morning as we've been singing, as we hear your word, as we uh, give back to you some portion of what you've given to us, Lord, I pray that this would be worship in spirit and in truth so that Jesus Christ would be honored and so that you would receive much glory. And Lord, I, I want to pray for our nation this week as we are um, in some pretty tumultuous times. Lord, I pray for uh, President Trump, for our Congress, uh, for those in, in um, authority over us throughout this nation. Lord, would you grant all of them wisdom and insight? Lord, we pray that you uh, would be superintending their sinful desires and their righteous desires to accomplish your purposes. And so, Lord, um, we pray for wisdom for all of them. Uh, Father, we pray for a, a rapid ending of the um, government shutdown. Um, the, the budget deal would be uh, arrived at soon so that our uh, military, our men and women in the military, wouldn't be penal, uh, penalized by not being paid for a while. Uh, Father, help us to, to navigate that well. Lord, we thank you for uh, the recent uh, March for Life in Washington, D.C., opposing abortion, calling for um, a celebration of life uh, in general, uh, for um, the protection of the unborn. And we pray that that would send a strong message to our nation. Lord, I also want to pray for uh, the Women's March that took place this weekend. Um, it is uh, appropriate that we see women as valuable uh, part of society to not downplay them and not to uh, oppress uh, women. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, where that message was accurately said during the march, that that would be heard. Uh, Lord, that uh, there would be some good that came from that as well as we um, try to uphold uh, women's rights and, and to protect women and to not exploit them. Uh, there's been a lot of that in the news as well. So Lord, would you heal our nation? And I know that over top of all of those things, all of those problems that we have, the answer is not more politics. The answer is not better politicians. The answer is not um, more taxes or less taxes. Lord, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, a view of humanity, a view of people as image bearers of God redeemed by the blood of the Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be the biggest thing that happens in our nation. Lord, would you revive us? Would you wake us again to the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? And so now would you, in your Holy Spirit, be with us to hear, to understand, and to apply your word. Lord, that we might obey, not so that we have a cushy life or, um, or the stuff that we want, but Lord, so that we would have more of you, which surpasses all of those things. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So uh, we're on chapter 39. Remember last week was uh, Judah and Tamar, and it was a pretty bleak chapter, um, not a pretty picture in the history of Israel. But if you remember how the, the outline was, it started with a section of kind of a genealogy, talking about Tamar and or, uh, Judah marrying this woman and having these children. And then it ended with kind of a genealogy. Tamar has her children, and those were two genealogical aspects to it. But in the center was the heart of the story, up to the story. Oh, yeah, we did the Judah thing. Now, remember, Joseph had gotten sold into slavery in Egypt. And so he kind of catches us back up, and then he says he was sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. So he gives us these three important things about Potiphar. Now, Potiphar is a pretty important guy. He's, he's got position. He is um, the captain or an officer of Pharaoh. That's his position in society. He is right up, right next to the most powerful man in the land. And at this time, Egypt was really the, the leader of the, I don't want to say free world because it wasn't free, but the leader of the world at this point. And so for Potiphar to be his, his official, that puts him way up there. His position is really important. And then what's his role as he's, he's an officer of Pharaoh? He is the captain of the guard. This is some significant power. His role is to protect Pharaoh. This is how trusted he is. If anybody comes to attack Pharaoh, it is Potiphar's job to deploy his troops to protect the Pharaoh, to protect the king. So that's the kind of power he has is if anybody wanders into the courts, he has the authority to just snuff them out. So he's, he's in a great position. He's, he's got a lot of power. And then finally, it just says an Egyptian. He, this is a privileged man. He has all that the world has to offer at this point because he is an Egyptian. He's not a slave who was brought into the Pharaoh's service. He is a natural-born Egyptian. He has, he has privilege being in this position. And this is the man who bought... Joseph. Now, you remember in the previous chapter, Joseph was about 17 when he went out. So he's a young man. So Potiphar's looking at the slave market. And he says, you know, this guy's looking pretty good. He's going to last a while. He's pretty strong. He's fairly young. So if I invest in him, then he's going he's to last for a bit. So this is the, the slave that he bought. And he brought him into his house. He bought him from the Ishmaelites and brought him into his house. Now, what comes after that, one of the phrases that continually refrain, or, uh, re gets repeated in this next little bit is, all he had. Joseph was put in charge of all he had. It, it comes up over and over again in that section. It was kind of like, wow. What Moses was trying to draw our attention to is, okay, I've described for you who Potiphar is, his position, his, his power, his privilege. Now, Joseph is put in charge of all of that. Everything that Potiphar had, Joseph has authority over. And what he says in there is because the Lord was with him. So everything that Joseph tried to do in the house succeeded. Everything he touched turned to gold. Now, there are people who I would refer to as omnicompetent. You probably know them and you're really frustrated by them too. Everything they do, they do extremely well. They go out and they play soccer and they're just stars and then they sit down and do math and they make you look stupid. And th these people are just omnicompetent. They have this natural ability to do everything well. That's not Joseph. And, and the reason I say that is because it, it says in here that his master knew that the Lord was with him. So his master is looking at, at Joseph and he's not saying, ah, gosh, this man is really su super talented. He's got a lot of abilities. 
he looks at him and he goes, there's something different about this guy. His God must be with him because everything he does, he does extremely well. So as Joseph's brought into Potiphar's house, Potiphar may have said, okay, hey, organize my, my shoe closet for me. You know, something menial like that, because you don't buy a slave and put him in charge of everything. They've got to prove themselves. And so Joseph goes in and he does his best and he organizes the shoe closet. And Potiphar comes up and he goes, how did you know those were the exact shoes I needed right up front? This is amazing. Well, why don't you be in charge of the garden for a little bit? And so he takes over the garden and all of a sudden all the flowers and all the bushes and everything are grown extremely well. He's like, hey, that's pretty impressive. You're in charge of the water. Let's see what happens there. And, and suddenly there's plenty of water and it flows beautifully and the garden has got fountains and stuff. And every single thing Joseph touched just flourished. And the reason for that was because even though he was a slave, God was with him. So that's the position Joseph finds himself in. And eventually he is put in charge. He is the overseer of the entire house. He has the same authority as Potiphar in this household. He's still a slave, so it's not like he can leave. But he has the authority to order the other slaves around. He has the authority to order things, to set up the banquets, to, to do anything that, that Potiphar has, except for one thing. In verse 6, it says, So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him had no concern about anything but the food he ate. What's up with the food he ate? Is he just a picky eater? You know? He, he only likes certain kinds of foods. I think what it is, is, is he's, Potiphar is saying, I need to be in charge of my food because that could get me killed. Uh, I could be poisoned by that. So I will take care of my food. You do everything else. So that, that's the, the picture that we have. That probably took a, a few years. I can't imagine this happening in, overnight. It probably took a few years worth of Joseph demonstrating his reliability for him to rise up finally to that kind of a position in this important man's house. And now we come to the central part of the story, which is what uh, Dan read for us this morning, uh, 6b. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph is not only a young man, he's a good-looking young man. He's handsome in the face, and he's got a good physique. That's, that's basically what it's saying. Kind of dropped in there but it sets up the rest of the story, doesn't it? So Mrs. Potiphar um, finally one day looks up and goes, hey, wait a minute, who's that? <laughs> this guy, I haven't seen him in the house before. And it says that she cast her eye on him. And she begins to notice and, and take a lot of notice of him. And so she starts asking him, lie with me. Come and be with me. So she, she's got everything. She's married to this rich, powerful man, but that's not enough. She wants Joseph too. And Joseph refuses. And listen to how he refuses. He said, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater than me in this house, nor has he kept anything back from me. So Joseph is kind of reporting to her, this is the situation I'm in. This is my position in the house, is I am equal to Potiphar. And he's kept nothing back from me except for you because you're his wife. What did we hear in the previous section? What did he, Potiphar keep charge of? His food. So this is clearly one of those big glaring errors in the Bible where you just can't trust it because, you know, the editors who are really inept didn't even catch that for thousands of years, right? Here's what's going on. Potiphar kept charge of his food. He took care of that. 
what on earth does Joseph mean that he's given me everything except for you because you're his wife? What he means is not Potiphar said, hey, don't sleep with my wife. That's kind of implied, right? You know, you can have anything you want in the house, just don't take my wife. That, that's kind of implied. So what Joseph brings that up for is what he's doing is he's looking at it and he's saying, the one thing that I cannot take of my masters is you because you're his wife. Why? Because God has ordained marriage that way. That's why the very next thing out of his mouth is, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What, what Joseph is saying is, is Mrs. Potiphar, ma'am, I cannot do that because God has ordained marriage. God has put man and woman together, and I understand the theology of marriage. Even though I don't have the scriptures yet, I know what it means. I know that it would be wrong to sleep with you, and so I will not do that. So that's one thing that Potiphar cannot put into my hands, something he cannot give me. He doesn't have the authority to give that to me. God has ordained how marriage works. And that's the way that is. So that's the reason he says, I will not be with you. I won't touch you because I won't sin against God that way. And it says, she spoke to Joseph day after day and he would not listen to her. This was not a mistake. You know, I had a, I had a little too much wine. I'm really sorry I said that. This is sexual harassment. Day after day after day, she is saying, come on, man. Come on, come on in my bedroom. Just, just come and sit on the bed. Just, just come and talk to me for a minute. It was persistent pursual of Joseph, not letting up. And Joseph fought it off. But then one day, when he went into the house to do his work, I always picture him going in with a clipboard. I don't know why, but I picture him walking in with a clipboard, you know, head down, looking at, he's making some notes, you know, uh, we got to order more, um, more figs because we're running low. And so he wanders into the house to do his work, maybe heads for Potiphar's desk to pick up some important papers or something. And um, when he comes in, all the men of the house are gone. In other words, all the other slaves, all the other workers in the house are out. And so she grabs him by the garment as he walks past and says, lie with me. And what Joseph does is he drops his garment and runs out. He, he flees. He's like, I, I've heard this for weeks on end. I'm not going there. And he runs out of the house. Well, now Mrs. Potiphar's caught out. Her, her problem is that she's now holding on to his gown. How am I going to explain this? Fortunately, apparently Potiphar had a late day at work, maybe a late meeting or something, so she's got time to figure out a story. So she cooks up this story. She calls the workers back into the house and says, look at this Hebrew who came to make sport of me, literally to laugh at me. He came in to, to, to taunt us, and I got his garment, and he ran away naked. And so you see what's going on? Potiphar brought this Hebrew in, and he's just come in to, 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 he, to tease us. That's what he's here for. So when Potiphar comes home, she repeats the story. This Hebrew slave who you bought, by the way, came in to, to, to make sport of me. And, and he, I got his garment and he left. Unfortunately, Potiphar believes it. He sees the garment in her hand. He hears the story. And I, I, for me, it's cognitive dissonance. This man has been nothing but faithful to you for years. And now this accusation from your wife comes up and you believe it. Maybe she had a history like this of, you know, being with other people, so it seemed reasonable that she would be with him. Whatever, probably God just superintending, Potiphar believes it. And so he sends him away to prison. So Jesus, Joseph has gone from favored son to slave, 
from slave to, to the, the master of the house, essentially, and now he's prisoner. It's just this downward trajectory. But even in prison, the last portion here, even in prison, what we hear is God was with him. Yahweh was with him and showed him steadfast love. That word for steadfast love is chesed. It's hard to translate. Steadfast love is a, is a good way to translate it. It's covenant commitment, covenant love. It is undying devotion too. It is a strong bond. So what it's saying here in the end, even in prison, Yahweh is with Joseph because of his covenant love. He won't let him go. And so what happens in prison? <laughs> in no time, Joseph's in charge there too. Omnicompetent. I hate him already. <laughs> you can see why his brothers might got upset with him if he was able to do everything well like that and was loved. So that's kind of the story in a nub. Um, what does it mean for Israel? What is Israel supposed to do with this? Well, don't forget, my, my theory is Moses wrote Genesis just after the Exodus, just after the golden calf. So they're at Mount Sinai. They start worshiping a golden calf. They've been whining about going to Egypt because it was so much better to be a slave there than it was to be wandering around the desert. And so let's build a God like the Egyptian gods. That's, that's kind of my theory for the book of Genesis. If this is true, if this timeline is true, if this is the first thing that he wrote after they left, what he's writing to them, he's reminding them, remember these folks were slaves. This whole generation that's come out were slaves in Egypt for a period of time. And they weren't slaves like Joseph was a slave. They weren't well treated. They were abused. They were beaten. They had taskmasters over them. Pharaoh got mad and said, take away their straw. They got to get it themselves, but don't reduce the amount of work they have to do. So this is kind of the situation they've come from. And so when they think of slavery, they're thinking that negative terms. What Moses is offering is, now hold on for a second. Look at Joseph. And we'll get to the rest of the story about how they come in as celebrated guests. But at this point, he's saying, the slavery you were used to is not typical for our people. Joseph was not beaten and abused and neglected. He was in charge of the house. So even if you are slaves, you're not this kind of slave. You don't want to go back to this or you don't want to go back to what you had. This, even Joseph, when he was a slave, was, was the master of the house. So don't forget, Israel, you're not slaves. That's not your natural state. So how on earth then do they get to that position? So Joseph comes in, even though he's a slave, he has risen up in prison and in Potiphar's house to this position of authority, this position of privilege where he's in charge. Well, right at the beginning of Exodus, Moses explains to them, this is how you wound up in the position you were in. Now there arose in a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Compare that with Joseph. Joseph is not a slave in the field. He's a master in the house. So what Moses is warning the Israelites is, you guys don't want to go back to that. 
You, you don't want to go back to that kind of slavery. That wasn't how we got there. The slavery is different. We were oppressed out of fear. So the reason this happens is because in the world, we have, in the world, world, the way the world works, we have systems that we expect to produce for us. If we do these things, then the end result is we should get a re good return on our investment. We, we're going to follow this process, and in the end, we should get that. We have little gods that we set up in this world, and we say, if I appease this god and this god and this god, I'll get this result. And so our, our desire is to get ahead. Well, God comes in with his people and sets that all up on end. Your systems don't work. It's not going to selfishly get you what you want. And so when God's people show up, they are seen, they can be perceived as a threat because you're not fitting into my mold, my process for how this is supposed to work. I'm going to, I'm going to build this factory. I'm going to hire people at this rate and I'm going to produce this product. And then I expect to turn a profit. And, and how is it that you come along and you're prospering, you're finding joy in life that I don't have and you're not fitting into this system? So whenever God's people wind up in this process, they always fit in poorly. They, they always are, are, are seen as odd. And so that's kind of how it is for Christians in the world, is we kind of don't fit that system. We've always been oddballs. So if you're strange, you're in the right place. This is, this is where strange people come. Is we don't fit. Um, in, um, in China, when the Christians were kicked out, there were about three million Christians. When the uh, industrial or when the uh, the Cultural Revolution was over and, and people started coming back, there's about 80 million Christians in China now, and they're still oppressed. The government just had para legal, para military folks tear down a bunch of Christian churches because they were too big, even though there are 80 million Christians in the country. They don't fit in with our system. We have this nice thing called communism. We've got it all figured out. We're going to uh, regulate how everybody shares everything. Um, we'll be officially atheists so that you guys will all follow along. And you Christians come along and you're, just, you're, you're grinding gears here. Get on board. So one of the things about being God's people is you're always going to not fit in. There's always going to be a way in which you kind of grind against the process. Uh, lie, cheat, and steal is the way to get ahead, right? Why won't you Christians get on board with that? How come you're not, you're not participating in this? And so Christians globally are persecuted. It's not a particularly popular statistic, but the most persecuted religion in, a, in the world is Christianity. In America, you would think we were the, the tyrants, that we were just you know, torturing people on the streets or something. Globally speaking, we are the most persecuted religion anywhere. And so one of the questions that I was looking into is I said, well, why? What, what's, where does this persecution come from? Why would we be oppressed like that? And I found this article in uh, April from the, the Christian Post where they, they quoted Open Doors USA. Uh, Open Doors USA is a ministry to the persecuted church reporting on what's going on. And so Open Doors said that persecution happens because of three different things. They, they categorized it in three different ways, and I think they're helpful. The first reason for persecution is tribal impulses. Tribal impulses. In other words, this is who we are, this is how we do things, and you're a Christian and you're not fitting in. So that would be things like Islamic extremism, or I might add Buddhist extremism, because in, um, in India there's some persecution that Buddhists uh, perpetuate too. We are a Buddhist 
village or we are a Muslim village and therefore you Christians are not fitting in. And so there's this tribal pressure on, uh, on people to either conform, leave, or die. And that's kind of one, one of the areas that, uh, that tribalism comes from. Islamic ex extremism, religious military, military militancy, sorry, tribal antagonism, ecclesiastical arrogance. So Christians could even persecute Christians. You're not our type of Christian, therefore we're going to persecute you. The next one is secular impulses. This, this impulse for secularism. Um, communist oppression, aggressive secularism. What aggressive secularism means is you are free to believe whatever you want. Aren't we great? We are so kind. We're going to let you believe whatever you want. You just keep it to yourself. Don't ever bring it up in public. That's aggressive secularism. If you bring it up in public, we will persecute you. And I wouldn't put France in the category of aggressive secularism, but they are an intentionally secular state. And so Muslims are not allowed to wear the hijab, Muslim women, because it is an expression of religion in public. You're not allowed to wear a crucifix because it's an expression of religion in, in public. And the, the French Revolution says it's best when religion is kept private. Keep it out of the public square. So you go hide at home and you can worship whatever you want, but in public we act this particular way. So when that gets to the point of being aggressive, then there's persecution. Because they find out not only do you believe this stuff, but you practice it and you live that way. You, you must conform. And then finally, exploitive impulse. And that's organized corruption, totalitarian propaganda. We gotta have a bad guy. We gotta have a fall guy here somewhere because we want more power. And so in, um, in Nazi Germany, it was the Jews. The Jews were the fall guys. So the Nazis said, they're the, they're your all, the source of all your problems. That, that's, that's who we need to go after. Um, and now in America, it's becoming uh, evangelicals, white evangelicals specifically. That's you and I, by the way. Um, we wind up in the crosshairs, and we're the problem with everything that's going on because of the way we vote or, or the way we don't vote or whatever it is. Um, so that's that kind of exploitive impulse is I need to get ahead. I need a bad guy. Um, I volunteer you to be the bad guy. With Joseph in Egypt, he's doing extraordinarily well. And so um, that's why there's kind of this opposition to him. Notice Potiphar's wife says, hey, this is how we do things around here. And I expect you to comply. Come and lie with me. And he says, absolutely not. I won't do that because of my God. So there's immediate opposition to him, and she gets him in trouble, and he winds up in prison. Moses is reminding them, you guys, this is the slavery you're used to is not the slavery that, that Joseph experienced, and you're not slaves. So that's why I think he tells this story, and it's important the way he tells it, because this is how his people are. What they're opposing are not... The, the Hebrews, they're opposing Yahweh. And, and that's exactly what happens. Think about Paul's conversion. Paul is out persecuting the church, arresting people, getting people executed. He is ravaging the churches. And then when he's traveling to Damascus to share this, this huge blessing that he has with Damascus, where he's going to purge all these Christians, Jesus meets him on the road, and he falls down because of this bright light. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Where was Jesus at this point? 
Jesus had ascended into heaven, was seated at the right hand of majesty. Paul couldn't touch him, but he could go after his people. He could persecute his people. And so when Jesus says, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you coming after me? So when Potiphar's wife is doing this, what she's opposing is not just Joseph. She is opposing God's people. Therefore, she is opposing God. That's why Joseph said, I cannot do this great sin against my God, what you're asking me to do. That's, that's the important part of this, is that twofold use of, of Genesis is you're not slaves and you don't understand God. This is who our God is. So then what does this mean for us? Well, one of the most popular applications, I went looking for other sermons on this section just to see how other people handled it. Almost all of them, the topic was temptation. Um, because Potiphar's wife is, is calling him into this sexual relationship, there's temptation there. And, and so one of the applications of chapter 39 is how to resist temptation or, or some teaching on temptation. I think that's right. There's also an aspect of vocation in it, what we do, how we work. So let's take a look at this for a second. Vocation. What did Joseph do in the house? He did everything. And he did it extremely well. God blessed him. He didn't bless him so that even when he was being lazy and not doing anything, it prospered. Joseph had applied himself to this work, this vocation that he had been called to, and he did his best. But it flourished because God blessed it. So Joseph didn't come in and, and arrange shoes just because he's a great shoe arranger. He did it because he was working to God and God blessed his work. So this is this, this doctrine of vocation. What are you called to do? What is your business? What is the, the role that God has called you to work in in this world? Do it the best you can because God's called you to that. Be faithful in what you've been called to do even when you don't like it because God will bless you. So when I got out of the Air Force, I moved to Illinois, I worked at Whole Foods Market after 22 years of fixing high-tech aircraft, flight test aircraft, the best position for me at Whole Foods was slinging tofu in the, in the deli, mopping floors, cleaning up at night. I hated that job. It was exhausting and I didn't like it, but it was what the Lord had called me to do at the time, so I shut up and did it well. And I had kind of a Joseph moment. Within one year, I doubled my income and moved up to an assistant manager position. Not because I'm omnicompetent, you guys know me. You, you, you've seen me at work but because I was just trying to be faithful with what I was doing. Um, that's called vocation. That's what are you called to do? What has the Lord led you to do? Do it well. Do it as best you can. So that's the doctrine of vocation. You see that in Joseph. Temptation. How do we resist and, and what about temptation? Potiphar's wife's problem was not that she noticed Joseph. You can't help but notice somebody like that. Beautiful people just draw your attention. Noticing a beautiful person is not the problem. What you do with that noticing is the problem. And so what she says here is she cast her eyes on him. In other words, she didn't look up and go, wow, who's that? Oh, um, back to work. She went, wow, who's that? And where's he going? And watched out for him and was seeking him out. She cast her eyes on him. That led her from just the, the initial flash of, wow, he's good looking, to lie with me. That's called being led into temptation. Once you're in there, once you're in there flirting with temptation, once you're, you're indulging it a little bit, you're, you're sunk. 
We're too, we're far too, we're just made out of clay. There's no way we're going to recover from that. So that's her. And she gets to the point where she's telling Joseph, come and lie with me and grabs his cloak and tries to pull him down. And he, he drops it and leaves. So look at how Joseph resists this. Is when she first brings it up, he remembers, I'm not getting away with anything. God knows me. God is with me. There's no dark closet. There's no quiet place where I can do this where God won't notice. I will not sin against my God by doing this with you. So the first thing that Joseph does is he recognizes I am accountable to God in this situation. And therefore, I'm going to resist temptation. And then as she's constantly calling out to him, he's not indulging even a little. Because notice what she said. She said um, he would not, it says that he would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. He wouldn't listen. Joseph, come and be with me. He refused to hear it. Joseph, just come and sit down on the bed next to me and talk to me for a minute. He would not lie down beside her, and he wouldn't be with her. So Joseph is fleeing this temptation by, first of all, recognizing his position before God and then just avoiding every shade of it, any chance at it. So that's, that's the, the vocation and the temptation. And I think those are good applications. I don't think that's why Moses wrote it, though, because what, what word is not ever mentioned in this entire chapter? Tempt. It never says that, G, that uh, Joseph was tempted. So I don't think that's really the point. So then what is the point? What are we supposed to do with this? Um, actually, when we look at this and we figure out how this works, temptation and vocation actually are part of it. They're an important part. So I don't want to say, if you've ever heard a sermon and they talked about temptation from this chapter, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's very right. Um, but what I'm saying is I, I'm trying to fit this into the flow of Genesis, and so I think there's more to it. We're back to that, that initial thing. You are not slaves. That's, that's the echo. That's the refrain throughout Genesis. You are not slaves. God's people are not slaves. So don't return back to the slavery that once held you. That's, that's the point. And so I think that's why we get this story, is we get this contrast between Joseph and Judah. Joseph goes down to, to Egypt and is tempted. Is, it, Potiphar's wife tries to draw him in. Judah goes down to Canaan, gets married, has kids, cheats his, his daughter-in-law, and then winds up sleeping with her and have more kids. So you get this, this real stark contrast between the two of them. Why is it that, that Joseph could maintain his faith in this? Why was Joseph able to resist temptation and Judah just dove right in? Well, I, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think the first thing that comes up is what did, jo what did Joseph have? as he went down into to, uh, Egypt into slavery. He didn't have his father's coat. They took that, cut it up, poured blood on it, and sent it home. He didn't have his family anymore. What he had was those two dreams, those promises of God. You are one day going to rule over your brothers, not for, their or not for their detriment, not to be mean to them, but for their blessing. Their, your, um, your, your staff of food, your, your sheaf of food is going to stand up and all of theirs will be subservient to it. You're going to provide some way for your family. So as Joseph is going into slavery, all he's got is God's promise that you're going to reign. And it's going to be for their good. So that's what he's holding on to. That's what he's trusting in as he goes into this, this situation is, Lord, I'm trusting you. He didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have a Bible to carry with him and, and read over every day. What he did have was his personal encounter with Yahweh in these beautiful dreams. 
So he's trusting the Lord. Judah didn't have that because Judah got upset that Joseph had these dreams. He thought that was horrible. And so Judah's really got very little to hang on to at that point. And he, so he just indulges himself. So Joseph goes in trusting Yahweh. And as he trusts Yahweh in this new slave position, he sees God bless him and bless him and bless him. So it's, this, it's kind of a feedback loop. I'm trusting God's promise and I'm acting on it. Then I watch God fulfill that promise and provide for me and care for me. Therefore, I can trust him more. And so the next thing that comes along, I trust him again. And I, I follow through with what I'm supposed to do and I watch how he provides again. And so as we're trusting God's promises, and walking in them, we see God fulfill them. That strengthens our faith and brings us right back to obedience again. That's how Joseph was able to do this. This is how he fought it. Um, so it's the same kind of thing for us. It's the same. We have more faith because we got a lot more scripture than they had. Uh, we have more promises. We have better promises. But we're trusting God and then we're walking in it, watching him fulfill it, and then come back and trust him again because he was, he was faithful in this. Maybe he'll be faithful in this one, too. So believers, you are not slaves. You, are, you have been set free from the slavery of sin. And that's from um, uh, Romans chapter 6. Paul talks about this very thing. At the beginning, he says, uh, starting in verse 5, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus Christ has died. He has set you free. Sin is not your master. It was. It is no longer your master. For he who has died has been set free from sin. And then a little further on in the chapter, he unpacks it a little bit for us. He says, do you not know that if you present your bodies to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul takes that picture of slavery. He says, once you were a slave to sin, once you were a slave to those natural impulses that you desired, those wicked things that you thought were going to fill you up, but because Jesus has died and you have died with Jesus, you have been set free from that. And now great news, you are a slave to God. And he is a master who will never let you down. He is a master who will provide for you and care for you. So how does uh, vocation then fit into this? Because I said it kind, of, it kind of fits. Well, vocation is if we understand humanity as not slaves, if our default setting is humanity are not slaves, then humans have dignity in work. And, and God is active in the world, and he's working through people to accomplish that. So the idea is, imagine if we take the alternative position, the evolutionary position. There is no God. You have no purpose in the world. You're just a bag of foaming chemicals that on a Tuesday afternoon is, is warm and decides to do this thing. You are no better than any other bag of chemicals on this planet, no matter how small or how big they are. There's no purpose to your life. There's no aim in the universe. You just are who you are. So what is work? Well, the evolutionary 
bottom line, the meta narrative is I've got to perpetuate my gene pool. That's all I'm about is passing on my genes. So I will use and abuse you if I can so that you can help me have a better life so that I can pass on a better life to my gene pool. That is the evolutionary meta-narrative. And so in the old days when we weren't so clever, there was slavery. You would just grab somebody and say, you're a slave now, you owe me money, you, you uh, are the wrong place and the wrong time, and so you lost the war and now you're my slave. Your role is to feed me. Your role is to make my life better. Your role is to provide for me so that, that I can pass on my gene pool and I don't care if you do or not. Today, we're much more sophisticated. And so we have employers and we pay people. But when you look at it, who gets all the good stuff? The folks at the top, the people who own the company, the CEOs, the CFOs, the CIOs, the shareholders, that's where the money flows to. But we'll give you a little bit back so that you can provide for your family too. And maybe you can make a better life for yourself. But basically it's, you're working for me so that I have the multi-million dollar mansion and I have the 14 cars and I have this great thing that I can pass on to my kids. That's the evolutionary way of looking at work. Basically, bottom line, you're here for me. If I can climb above you, I win. I will get from you as much as I possibly can and we'll just take it. So then what's the Christian view of this? What's, what's God's view on this? Well, God's view is that work is not a curse. Work is not the curse. God created the Garden of Eden. He took Eve out of Adam's side. He put them in the garden in order to work it. It was a blessing to them. It was a thing that God had created for them to do so that they would have meaning in their life. They would work on this creation that God had made. They learn more about him, see more about him. Work became a curse only after it was cursed. After Adam and Eve disobeyed, then God said, well, you know, by the toil of your brow, are you going to bring forth your food? So then, then work is cursed. But until that, work is actually part of who we are. It is human dignity to have meaningful, productive work because we're not slaves. So as Christians, we look at this and we say, whatever I'm doing, even if I'm working for mega corporation X and all the money is flowing to them, I've been called to this job and I'm gonna work this job as best as I can. And I will, I will earn the money that I can so I can provide for my family, not so I can pass on my gene pool, but because I've been called to raise godly children. I've been called to have a godly family. I've been called to serve other people, to give money to the poor, to take care of people. And so that's my vocation of work. That's how work fits in because I'm not a slave. I'm free. So vocation has a very important part into that. And then temptation fits in because you're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to other people and you're not a slave to sin. So when temptation comes, what the promise of the gospel is, is you have been given a way out. You're not the slave that you think you are. So whatever that pattern, that sinful pattern in your life that your flesh is just used to yielding to, the good news is you've died to that. You have been set free from that. You don't have to do that. You're not a slave to sin. You're free. And so the great news is you're a slave to God. And that sounds bad, doesn't it? A slave to God. So, so if you listen to atheists, there's this, this mean God up in heaven who is just going, worship me, worship me, worship me. And if you don't, I'm just going to shuffle you off to hell because I don't like you. It sounds like this terrible God who just is in such need. 
But we've been in the book of Genesis. We know how it started, right? Did God create the world because he was lonely? Did he create the world because he had nothing better to do? Did he create the world because he needed slaves and servants? It was an outpouring of who he was. He was so full of goodness, he created a universe to share that goodness with. So when I say that you're a slave to God, what I'm saying is not you're going to have a joyless eternity serving this mean God who hates your guts. What I'm saying is you will find the delight of your heart, the thing that you were built for, what your heartstrings will sing to, you will find in serving God. And that's what God wants for you. Every other master that you have will crush you. Every other master will steal from you and take and take and take. What God says is come and be my servant and let me pour out on you. Let me pour out my goodness on you. You will find the delight of your heart in serving me because you'll see me more and more. That's why Jesus came and washed feet. So the Son of Man didn't come to be served. You can't possibly serve God. The Son of Man came to, to be a servant, to serve you, to wash your feet, to bring you into his kingdom so that you will delight in who God is. That's that great news about God seeking those who would worship him in, in uh, spirit and in truth not in compulsion, and this is no fun, but out of this joy that flows out of your heart. So that's that other part, is you are not a slave. Don't forget this. We're going to hear this quite often as we go through Joseph's story. It's an important part of the gospel, is that we have been set free to be what we were created to be, which is worshipers of God. So Joseph ends in the prison. Um, anybody volunteer to go to prison? We want to sign up for that part of the discipleship program? That's, that's where it gets really good, right? Well, Moses moves very quickly to Joseph was in charge of the prison. I'm sure, again, it was years, probably longer than it was in Potiphar's house, because you don't trust somebody who's thrown in jail. They're in jail because they did something wrong and are probably not trustworthy. So it probably took a long time for Joseph to move up in the jail, too. But... We hear that refrain again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. There, there is something innately built into human beings when you see somebody who's functioning right with God that it, it resonates with the human heart. And the response could be, I'm really jealous and I hate you because I want what you got and I'll never get it and I don't want to know about it and so I'm going to just oppose you. Or it could be, Wow, there's something going on here. I, I kind of like you. And I think that's what's happening with Joseph is they're seeing this man who's walking with God and they're resonating with that. And they're saying there's something good going on here. There's something right. It's not jealousy. He's, he's you know, the, the top prisoner in the prison and therefore I hate him. It's there's something right here. There's something good that's going on. And that was the promise. That was who Jesus came and was. That's how he got met with love from certain people and hate from others is because they saw in him, this is who this is humanity could be. This is one who's walking with God. So that's the application, I think, of, of Joseph and Potiphar, um, and Mrs. Potiphar, is this walking with God in a fallen and broken world. And how do you measure your success? How do you know if you're walking with God? Is it because you are now in charge of everything? It didn't matter what position Joseph was in. When he was in charge of Potiphar's house, God was with him. When he was a prisoner in prison, God was with him. 
So it can be confusing for us if we try to judge ours or other people's circumstances and say, that's how we know if they're walking with God or not. Boy, they're, they're, that person's really having a hard time in their life. God must really be mad at them. That, that Joseph puts that all on end. He, he flips that upside down because even as he's arrested and thrown into prison, God is with him. So this is the, the point for God's people is don't judge yourself by your circumstances. And for all, everything that's good in the world, don't judge other people by their circumstances. God may well be with them in their hard time, in their difficulty. Because at their root, human beings are not slaves. And for God's people, we have been set free to be with God. So let's take Joseph with us this week. What are you doing this week? What are your plans? What, what, what work do you have ahead of you? Do it unto God. Do it so that God gets the glory, so that it becomes obvious he is with you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would see with the eyes that Moses gives us in Joseph's life. I am sure that Joseph didn't see all of this perfectly at the time. I'm, I'm sure that when he was thrown into prison, he was in despair and, and calling out to you on a regular basis. And as he's moving up, Lord, he's trusting that you, even in, in those situations, have what's best for him in mind. And Lord, I pray that we would do the same. It is so hard to believe what we don't see because what we do see it contradicts it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see with eyes of hope that the world is sinful, it's broken, it's just heading in weird directions at times, and yet we have this hope of a king who rules over all of this chaos and is leading it to an appointed purpose. So, Lord, give us faith to believe that. And I pray that for all of us, we would have those moments where you, we see you be faithful, that that would feed back into our faith to trust you for the next moment and the next and the next. And Lord, would you accomplish great things, your covenant promises, your has said in our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.